Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Our visitor, for whom many of you have patiently waited, doesn't really need any introduction, but I'm going to give him the briefest of ones, and then he wants to say a few words. Uh, he is a brilliant investor, uh, founder of Skybridge, and... You, you can make it very long if you're going to and, talk like that. <laughs> and of SALT, uh, which is a thought leadership forum that I think is next convening in Abu Dhabi. Is that right? Yeah, next week. Yeah. Uh, and he was the White House communications director for a while. Are you going uh, <laughs> to mention I got fired? Because they all know I got fired. You can mention that if you want. Okay, you wanted to start off and say something. So let me explain. I, I, first of all, I profusely apologize for being late. I was on the 11 o'clock flight with my son, who lives in downtown L.A., and he's the videographer for a rapper called The Baby. So some of you probably know who he is. And so my, my son is basically, uh, if you go on his webpage, you'll see The Baby giving shout-outs to Mooch. It's not me. It's my son. And so what ended up happening is he came home for Thanksgiving. He missed his flight. And so they canceled his return flight. He was supposed to fly with me at 11 o'clock. So we have the same name, Anthony Scaramucci. They issued him the ticket. He boarded the plane while I was at the Starbucks with my daughter. And when I got to the plane with my ticket, they said, oh, you're not on the plane. You've been canceled. And I said, what are you talking about? And then, and then they proceeded to explain to me what happened. So I tried to get my son off the plane. But they said, no, no, he can't come off the plane because his bags are underneath. You're on the 1230 flight, and uh, it's nothing we could do. And so that's why I'm here late. I apologize for that. So a lesson to all of you undergrads, a lesson to adults in the room, don't name your kids after yourself. That's lesson number one. <laughs> and number two, tell your parents if you miss a flight, because I would have rebooked the flight for him. <laughs> so anyway, he was flying first class here at 11 o'clock eating caviar. <laughs> I was in the back of the plane. Dressed like a shlemiel. But anyway, that's the whole story, and I apologize for being late. Uh, so I'm just going to start off with a, a very direct question. How hard was it for you to break with Trump? Extremely hard. You know, it's, a, it's an extremely hard thing because I want, I, 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 I want to leave here leaving some sort of impact, and so I'm going to say some things that are very, very human and are a little bit vulnerable for me, but I'm going to say them anyway because... I want you to leave here recognizing that when you're super close to power, you start having a reality distortion field take place. And you may think that you are morally righteous. You may think that you have the sanctimony and God's grace to be anchored to something that is a higher power or whatever it may be. But what ends up happening is uh, if you're human, you may get some predilections towards curving yourself or using things that are cognitive dissonance. And so um, for me, uh, I didn't think the president was going to win. I, Bob and I have shared that story. There wasn't one person on November the 8th in the campaign headquarters, Trump himself, that thought he was going to win. If we want to revise history and pretend that, that they, they did, it's just not the case. So when he won, there was a shock, and I can remember uh, – Sean Spicer, him and I don't get along. I mean, I, I call him, I call him Liar Spice from the Spice Girls, you know, but anyway, we don't get along. But he left, uh, and f was flying 
to, I think, Dallas or something like that, you know, on the way out before the thing was over. You know, I mean, he had the first flight booked out. He had to cancel the flight because we ended up winning. And so now we win, and the president comes over to me, the president-elect says, I want you to come work for me. And I'm like, okay. And I think I've shared this with Bob. I'm a blue-collar kid from Long Island. I've, you know, I've done well. I went to Tufts, Harvard Law School, built two successful businesses. And, you know, I've lived a very large part of the American dream. I mean, my dad uh, worked 42 years. He was in a union, and he was in a construction company as a heavy crane operator. Um, had a pretty good, pretty good wage back then. That's the struggle that we're in right now. Those people can't get the wages, the living wages that they had 40 years ago. So, you know, I had this great life. I've had this great life. And so President of the United States asks you to go work for him. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I want to do that. Now, my wife did not want me to do that. Um, she didn't like him, and she did not want me to do that. And so intoxication number one, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get a chance to work in the White House. Of course, I'm going to do that. And then what happened was I got Washington two-stepped. You know, Bob knows this because he's an experienced political guy. Uh, Reince Priebus did not want me to work in the White House. And so what he did was he was dropping bombs on me in the paper uh, through anonymous sources, and I had my company up for sale because, believe it or not, I was trying to do the right thing. All these guys have kept their companies. Uh, Jared's kept his company. Uh, it's the secretary, Wilbur Ross. He's kept all of his companies. I mean, these guys, I don't know what they're doing. You read the you read the ethics thing, you have to sell your companies and devolve yourself or your businesses. And so first thing I did was I put my company up for sale, which was extraordinarily painful, by the way, because I built the company from three people in a room to 80 people, four offices around the globe, $12 billion of capital, an award-winning conference. And now this is like an artistic creation for me, and I have to now give it up in order to serve the country. So I'm willing to do that. I put the company up for sale. I had four bids. The highest bid was from an American company. The second highest bid was from a Chinese conglomerate. And I took the second highest bid because they didn't want to let my employees go. You know, they built a company with me. I figured I'm not going to blow out 40 employees. And so the, the American company was going to pay me $12 million more because they were going to shed all those employees, Bob. And so the net operating income at the bottom line would have been higher for them. So I took the, and that was Priebus's entry to go after me. So he was saying, I'm, I'm going to sell the company to the Chinese, and the Chinese are going to use me as some lobbying apparatchik inside the White House. So then I called the president, and I said to him, Priebus and Bannon, these are very bad guys, and you're going to figure that out. And when you, I'm not going to come work for you now, but when you want to get rid of those two guys, you give me a call, and I'll come down and take care of that for you. That was colossal mistake number two. I mean, I got a thousand mistakes. You guys don't have enough time for all my mistakes, but that was colossal mistake number two because he called me. He said, okay, you were right about these guys. Come down, and I want you to help me clean this up. And then he offered me the comms job, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not a comms director. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I can talk on television. I'm not a comms director. I said, what we'll do is uh, Bill Shine is a friend of mine from Fox News. I think you know Bill. I said, let me see if I can bring him down. He's more qualified to be a comms director. Say, yeah, yeah, just come down and fix this for me. By the way, the reason he gave me the comms director job is uh, the guy that he let go, Mike Dubke, it was the only office that was vacant in the West Wing. That's how I ended up as the comms director. I wrote that in my book, so I mean, what could I tell you? So I said, so here's what I did. Uh, colossal mistake number three, President of the United States asked you to do something. You may think that you are capable of withstanding that sort of 
ask, and maybe you are. I wasn't. I said, okay, I'm ready to do it. My wife was like, I definitely don't want you to do this. You've got our family life balance completely out of whack. And so, boom, she hit me with the colossal filing for a divorce. And you probably, I mean, you know, if, you, if you read the New York Post, I mean, it was all on the front page. It was another thing Priebus did to me, right? He, he had the whole oppo drop on me. Totally fine. I got an 11-day PhD in Washington scumbaggery. Okay, I can explain to you how these people operate. Okay, they're really terrible people. So now I'm in the White House, and I made the mistake with the reporter. We can go over that if you want. But I have never, ever said to anybody that it wasn't a mistake that I owned, 100% my fault. And if you're a young person in the room and you make a mistake, number one, own the mistake. Don't do this and pretend it's somebody else's mistake or blame your mother or whatever people do. Say, look, I made the mistake. I own the mistake. That mistake was a fireable offense. Now, having said that, I did contribute to get, getting Steve Bannon blown out of the White House. And I'm telling you right now, 50 years from now, somebody will say, hey, thank God that happened. Could you imagine those two lunatics, Trump and Bannon, in the White House together right now going through this fiasco? Okay, so even though I said something inappropriate, I do feel I've made a historical contribution to <laughs> global sanity, okay? So, so now I'm, I'm blown from the White House, and I have to now make a decision. What are we going to do here? I think Trump is acting erratic. He's a little nuts. But I've got to take the higher course here. I've got to take the higher road. I'm not going to go against the president because I just got fired from the White House. It's not the right thing to do. I'm going to support the president's agenda, but I'm also the same way I was on the campaign. If I saw something I didn't like, I'd say, hey, you know, I don't like that. The women and the children are being separated in the cages. You can go on CNN, Fox News, wherever. You can see me saying, don't like that. It's a really bad idea. The day that he was in front of uh, the world press in Helsinki, he's with Vladimir Putin, and he's denouncing our 17 intelligence agencies. And he's saying that he believes the Russian president over our 17 so, Sorry, don't like that. I'm on the TV. Don't like that. He called me that day. He got mad at me. Well, what are you doing? Why are you saying that? I said, what am I saying? He said, you remember that day? Some of you may be New Yorkers. There was a day in 2013 where two police officers were shot through the, pa- the driver's side door, uh, you know, basically by a terrorist. They, they, they shot the two police officers in Brooklyn. And Bill de Blasio, for whatever reason, said some derogatory comments about police officers shortly thereafter, and the entire police department turned their backs on Bill de Blasio. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. If you like Bill de Blasio, don't like Bill de Blasio, I'm just being factual. But what I will give Bill de Blasio credit was he realized that he had a problem with the police department, and so he started ceding to the request, and the crime rate has stayed low in New York, whatever you think of Bill de Blasio. But I brought it up to the president. I said, I was with you when you were railing on Bill de Blasio for turning his back on the police officers. And now you may not like Comey, Clapper, and Brennan, or these people, but these are career service officers and the intelligence agencies that have kept the country safe, and you're the leader of the free world and the commander-in-chief. You can't talk like that. And so then he tried to walk it back, but he can't. He can't walk anything back. He could never be in a room like this and admit that he's been wrong about anything can't apologize. I've seen him apologize three times, Bob. You want to hear the three times? Yeah. He apologized to uh, his wife and the American people on October 7th, 2016 at 11.58 p.m. Anybody remember what that was about? It was the Access Hollywood tape. He was white as a ghost and he apologized. Apology number one. 
Apology number two was he apologized to Theresa May for giving that interview in July of 2018 to the tabloid. He leaned over to her in the press conference and said, I'm sorry about that, made a mistake. And the third apology was he apologized to the original Pocahontas family for comparing Elizabeth Warren to Pocahontas. He said that that was inappropriate. Other than that, I've never heard the guy apologize, right? So he's not capable of, of an apology. So now we're going down the continuum. Um, the press is the enemy of the people. There's probably members of the press here. And we're live streaming. I don't think the press is the enemy of the people, Bob. I wrote an op-ed in the Hill uh, online magazine published in April of 2019. I explained in there the elements of why the press is not the enemy of the people, but there are two core tenets that you can never forget about the First Amendment. Tenet number one, it's there to protect you from tyranny. And at the end of the day, they wanted a fourth check on power, and they knew that people that get power get crazy. Believe me, I saw it firsthand. And when Lord Acton said that absolute power corrupts absolutely, he meant it. So the free press is there so that people have to go to a podium and answer the questions. Now, I only lasted one mooch, which is 11 days, Bob. That's like a time period, right? <laughs> Stephanie's been there for 44 mooches. But I'm one nothing on her on press conferences. I want you to think about that. She cannot go to the press room and answer the questions from the press. Right? When the president turned to me and said, I want you to go to the press room, answer the questions, I said, no problem. I'll, I'll answer any question. She can't do it. Some of it's him and some of it's her. But one, hold people accountable for their power. Number two, it is the gift of economic innovation to America. When you teach people to speak and think freely, they grow up and they create Facebook and Google and Apple Computer and all these other great companies. If you are censoring the Internet and telling people they can't talk about their political leadership, you are curbing their creativity. So, I mean, I can go on and on and on, but when we got to the four congresswomen, Bob, I said, okay, that is enough for me. Okay, that is a racist, nativist trope that every immigrant has heard coming into this country. And my Italian-American grandparents heard go back to the country that you came from. So I said, okay, that's enough for me. I'm on the Bill Maher show in August. I'm trying to defend on certain things. Uh, I think Bill or somebody said to me, what about the racism and the racist trope? I said, sorry, I cannot defend that. So then he, we're at the uh, after party, and Bill comes over to me. My wife is standing there and says, you think Trump saw that with the show? I said, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. My wife said, I don't know. He definitely saw it. You and Bill Maher on the show together, for 100%, he watched the show. And then Bill looked at me and said, oh, you're in trouble. I said, I'm in trouble. Why would I be in trouble? Well, you said that the racist comments were totally indefensible. And with Trump, you got to go 13 for 10. You can't go 7 for 8 for Trump. He'll destroy you. 13 for 10. And so you were 6 for 8 for Trump. He's going to come after you tomorrow. So I'm at the Beverly's Hotel. I'm in one of those uh, cabanas. I'm, I'm, I'm drinking something out of like a beautiful coconut. And the first tweet comes in, it's against Bill Maher. Now I'm like, okay. He obviously watched the show. Two hours later, I'm at Craig's. I'm having dinner. And the tweet comes in against me. And he's now attacking me. Okay, so no problem. I'm a public figure. I can handle that. Then he goes after my wife. Okay, you can go look up the tweets. He's attacking my wife. He knows my wife and I were in the middle of a divorce. We've subsequently reconciled. But, you know, like I said, he may not have early-stage dementia, but he has early-stage fascism, for sure. 
He's going after private citizens on his Twitter feed. What the hell is that? Okay, so I'm not Ted Cruz. Okay, I don't know. Do I look like Ted Cruz to anybody in this room? I'm not Ted Cruz. I'm an Italian kid from Long Island. Don't go after my mom, my wife, my daughter, or my sister. Okay, don't do that. I will keep punching until you go through the ropes. So that was it. And I said, okay, the guy's nuts. Went on CNN. I said, we have a full-blown meltdown from this guy. Uh, He's outside of every boundary and every norm. My liberal friends will say, well, he was like that in 2015. I have to own that. I'm not sitting here telling you that I don't own that. Everybody that supported him has to own it because what happened was you had two choices. It's a hiring decision. I'm a lifelong Republican. You had a choice between a Democrat and a Republican. And a lot of us did the cognitive dissidence routine of holding our nose to his personality choice. I have to own that. I'm not sitting here not owning that. But if you read my op-ed in the Washington Post, what I would say to you is please create an off-ramp for other people. If you want to ridicule me for being part of his team and working for him, I can accept the criticism. But what's going on right now, there's a lot of people that want to break from him. There's a lot of people that are like, okay, but I can't break from him because I won't be able to subject myself to the media ridicule or the, the ridicule at the family table on Thanksgiving or the ridicule at work. And so I'm going to hold on. And I'm going to clutch very tightly to him. And then he has all these like cult-like mnemonic tendencies that he does, which I've actually studied. I can explain to people. But, you know, this is a full-blown disaster. On the way here, I got here late, but I did download the impeachment report. Did you read it yet? Okay, it's, it's horrifying. Okay, I went to law school, and I took criminal procedure and criminal law and criminal ethics. If you read the impeachment report, and most Americans won't read it, but I suggest it's only 128 pages. If you read the report and you're still supporting him, I'd like to have a call me. I'll give you my cell phone number. Let's have a conversation. It is absolute rank criminality and rank lawlessness. Okay, so if that's what you want in a country that has had the 243-year experiment that has lifted so many people out of poverty and created so much opportunity, we can go in that direction if you want. We have a choice now. So, so look, you know, I'm being long-winded. I just want to say two more things, then I'll take another question. The last two things are, uh, this isn't a partisan thing. This is a system threat. It's not a partisan thing. Um, as an example, when someone says to you, well, they're trying to revoke the election. No, they're not. He's removed from office. A Republican replaces him. Not, this is a rank criminal attack on the system by a very lawless person. Now, I predicted that he would melt down. I said it would be like Trump Noble. Anybody see the HBO series Chernobyl? Anybody see it? So, like, you know, so it's like it's episode two. The, the goddamn reactor is blown to pieces. Trump Noble. It's melted at the core. And now all the apparatchiks are sitting around saying, holy shit, do we cover this up or do we clean it up? And the Republicans have made a decision. They're, cover, they're, on, they're on cover up. But there was a scene in the miniseries where they said, hey, if we cover this up, it's going to irradiate all the drinking water from here to the Black Sea. Do you remember that? And so every person on the Eurasian double continent is going to die. So okay, we've got to, we've got to clean it up. So that's what they're doing. They're, they're threatening the American system now because they're going to put one person in the system above the rule of law. Let me tell you something. They do that. They're going to empower this guy. And they empower this guy, and he gets reelected. He'll get impeached again. He'll be the first president to get impeached twice. All right, I'm long-winded, but go ahead. You can ask me a question. 
I'm going to go back. I'm going to take questions from the Oh, yeah. They look a lot friendlier than the White House press corps, just looking around. (laughs) You look Uh, a little less drunk than the White House press corps, too, just slightly less drunk. I want to ask you a a question about him and his operational style and then get to impeachment and the election. Uh, Mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy uh, once said that uh, if you were president of the United States, you had to have two or three or four people around who were allowed to tell you when you were being a dumb SOB and you had to reward them, not punish them. Does Trump have anyone around who tells him when he's wrong? So he did. So, you know, listen, I mean, John Kelly fired me. We restored each other for a little while. I'm not one to keep grudges. When he left the White House, I called him. We had a three-hour lunch. He was the keynote speaker at my conference. He's coming to Abu Dhabi with me. We've actually built a friendship. And so, you know, learning lesson for young people, when you're getting fired... Don't hold a grudge, okay? Build a relationship. So John and I are quite close. John Kelly was stopping him from doing certain things, okay? Anybody see that letter that he wrote to Erdogan, the uh, president of Turkey? I mean, it looked like someone wrote it with like a red Crayola crayon, right? And then sent it to the steno pool, right? I mean, it's really moronic, right? There's no way that that letter would have gotten out with John Kelly there. Jim Mattis was like that as well. H.R. Uh, McMaster was like that. Um, but, but yeah, the, he, he'll hit you with a ray gun. The minute you say, Hey, you may want to think about it differently. He'll hit you with a ray gun. There was a conversation I had with him. Of course, he barely knows me, by the way. That was another cute thing that he said. It's totally fine. He barely knows me. Barely he's, knows yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty soon. He's going to barely know Rudy. That's going to come <laughs> soon. Right. So, but I'm on air force one with him and we're talking about the Russian sanctions bill. He doesn't want to sign it. And I said, okay. And he says, then he looks at me and says, well, What's your opinion? I said, well, I'm not going to give you my opinion. You're not going to listen to me anyway. And then he started explaining to me why he doesn't listen to people because, you know, he's a very stable genius and is, he knows everything. And, uh, you know, he was a reality TV star and a business mogul. And uh, why would he have to listen to somebody like me? And I said, well, I grew up differently than you. Maybe I read different books than you, i.e. maybe one book more than you, right? And the guy's read zero books. Right? So I'm like looking at him. I said, well, if you don't sign it, that's your party that passed it. You know, it got passed in the House. Rubio pushed it in the Senate. McConnell got it passed. You're going to veto it. They're going to call up their buddies that are Democrats. You know how the club works. You say, hey, Chuck, I need 20 votes here to override the president's veto so we can teach him whose town this is. He said, but go ahead. Go do what you want. He ended up signing it. But the point being is that he doesn't like no. He doesn't like you may not be thinking about this properly, or you're, you know, like you said, you're a dumb SOB. He doesn't like any of that. And so if you want to just remove the criminality and you want to anal- analyze his management style, I mean, these are people very close to him, myself included, can't manage anything. He can't build a consensus or a process. So in order to manage something, and some of you probably are in business school or will go to business school, a couple of key things. Number one, can't have more than six reports. Pentagon will tell you that. GE will tell you that. Uh, at Skybridge, I have three reports. You can't have more than that because it gets crazy. And then those six reports can't have more than six reports. In the president's management style, there are no reports. So you're literally, it's like you're shooting billiards every morning and the balls are going all over the place. You have 16 uh, cabinet departments. You have 190 sub-agencies. There's no symphony or coordination. Some of you have probably read because of Bob's excellent uh, academic scholarship, Richard Neustadt's book, 
you know, you can either have a White House-centric model or a cabinet-centric model, or you can have a no-centric model. And that's the Trump model. There's no centrism to the model. And so what's actually happening is you're having a full-blown administrative breakdown of the executive branch. And since Bob's been there, what he can tell you is if I'm in Treasury, I may need justice to do things for me. If I'm in the Pentagon, I may need the State Department to do things for me. The entire system has been broken down. Okay, don't go by me. There are insiders. And if you read the anonymous book, it's fairly articulated in the anonymous book. But there are insiders beyond me. They just don't want to put their names on this stuff. I mean, one of the great things about the anonymous book, Bob, it's definitely not me, right? I mean, no one thinks it's me because I put my name on the damn thing. But, I mean, the truth of the matter is you have a full-blown breakdown in the system. Last thing, if you're not scared yet, let me scare you. He's going to go from 73 to 78 in his second term with no staff. Half, Half the people have not been staffed. And he's going to have his phone on. And he's going to be using his Twitter feed from 73 to 78, not listening to anybody. Okay, so he's already trying to destroy the 75-year global alliance. He's already weakened the hard and soft power of the U.S. globally. And uh, what is it with Vladimir Putin? Someone should just answer the question. I don't get it. I mean, what Nancy Pelosi saying, why is all rose with you lead back to Vladimir Putin? Go through the checklist. Everything that Vladimir Putin would want from an American leader, he's literally gone down a checklist and delivered. So uh, you want him impeached? Uh, I want him removed from office. I, right. want him, I want him impeached. Well, first of all, he has met every definitional category in the Constitution to be impeached and removed from office. There has been no rebuttal. Anybody read the, the uh, Republican rebuttal? Did you read it? It was like, I'm just like, Ridiculous. I mean, you could have put it on toilet paper. It looks soft. Too. I mean, it's like, it was ridiculous. There was nothing of substance. They're now, I think what they're trying to do now, they're trying to use a Russian propaganda story from the Russian intelligence agencies to protect the president. They're trying to say, well, it was the Ukraine that interfered with the election and not the Russians. And so the president had license to go after the Ukrainians for their corruption. It had nothing to do with Joe Biden. But if you read the 128-page report that Adam Schiff produced, there are no less than 15 direct testimonies. And now the phone transcripts are being released and the phone logs are being released where that is categorically true. So I'm watching my buddies on Fox News. They're like mental gymnastics. It's like literally watching the 2020 Olympics. It's like they're figure skating and doing pirouettes and they're saying all of this crazy nonsense. I don't know if you guys have noticed – they don't invite me on anymore. Okay, uh, Jesse Waters invited me on. He was trying to hit me. He was putting up all these stupid chirons, and I just started blasting away at him intellectually. He was like, okay, we can't have him on anymore. So if you've noticed, I haven't been on Fox News. They won't put me on. Okay, can't get on Fox and Friends, God forbid, because that's Trump's you know audience of one program. That would flip everybody out. Okay, Sean and I are very good friends. one of my best friends. I mean, I grew up with Sean Hannity. And so we've just decided we're going to talk every day but not talk about politics. That lasts about three minutes, and then we start shooting peas at each other. You know, it's fine. But, but you, are, you are in a media-segmented society now, and there's money being made off of this propaganda. Don't kid yourself. Uh, let's say that he is impeached, but the Senate Republicans stand – 
almost monolithically with him. They refuse to remove him. Uh, do you think he has to be defeated in the next election? Yeah, well, he obviously has to be defeated in the next election, but let me just give you some insight there. They're talking inside the White House. They put Mitt Romney right next to him because they know Mitt Romney hates his guts. So you got Mitt Romney right next to him at that opioid thing. And, uh, you know, there's five or six senators that have told people quietly they would vote for conviction like ASAP. Uh, if you can get three or four of them to come out publicly, you'll start the waterfall, and then it's over for the guy. But they're all afraid of him. Okay, let me tell you something. You have never felt more alive than when the president of the United States is calling you an unstable nut job on Twitter. You never felt more alive. I mean, you're as white as this kid's T-shirt, okay, when you see it, okay? And my heart goes out to the woman, Lisa Page. I don't know if you know who that is, or the, the FBI agent. It's a woman who had an affair. She admitted the affair. She reconciled with her husband. She's trying to have her life, and this guy's faking orgasms on international television. It's totally revolting and classless. But she's a private citizen. He is the president of the United States. Read your constitution. You're supposed to be more powerful than him. Okay, Jeffersonian democracy, the implication of that is that the individual has the seat of power. And these are people in your service. They're working for you. You're not working for them. Okay, and what did they say? Article 65, the clearest abuse of power is somebody using their office to go after a private citizen. And by the way, that's on the Umberto Echo checklist of fascism. Okay, and so he's going, you want to go after me? No problem. I'm a big boy. I've handled bullies my whole life. You're going after a woman who's trying to reconcile her marriage? What's wrong with you? You're going after my wife? She's a suburban housewife who's never said one thing publicly negative about you? Are you, are you nuts? I mean, what the hell is wrong with you? And the fact that people are defending him, it's fine. Somebody said to me, well, when he went after Ted Cruz's wife, you defended him. I have to own that. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, well, let me explain the nuance of that. No, that was a mistake on my part. I apologize for that. I have to own that. You see that? But this guy's a, this guy's a sociopathic guy. He's going to hurt you. He's going to hurt the country. Okay, and these things, when you really study megalomania and narcissism like this, they don't end well. Okay, they always end with some kind of nihilistic explosion or breakdown. And so what he's doing is, and the reason why he's hitting me, and uh, well, I don't know if you noticed, Bobby stopped hitting me. He figured, better stop hitting him because he's a little crazy, and I don't want to elevate him. So he hits weaklings. He'll go after the weaklings. So Ed Henry asked the question of this guy, Mark Levin, you know, the lunatic conservative. He just asked him a simple question. Well, what do you think the president's intention was with the Ukrainian thing related to Joe Biden? The guy exploded on him, and then Trump launched 19 personal attack tweets against the Fox News host, Ed Henry. Go look it up. And what was that designed for? That was designed to send a message to all the other Fox News hosts. Don't say one word out of place as it relates to me because I'll destroy you, and that's another message to all the people in the Senate and in the House, don't break ranks with me. If you break ranks with me, I'm going to use the power of my office to destroy you. But I got news for all those people, big deal. Big deal. After the first unstable nut job tweet, it gets a lot easier to deal with. You know, I mean, come on, guys. I mean, we, we, we should be able to take this guy on easy. So I will be traveling around the country as I am, two swing states a, a week, 
Uh, I was in Ohio um, and on Detroit uh, prior to Thanksgiving. I was down in Florida, and I'm speaking in colleges, speaking in front, in front of groups. I'm going to any place that will invite me, chambers of commerce, and I'm taking questions, and I'm explaining the danger. And where I'm, where I'm actually resonating is with suburban housewives who are trying to raise kids and trying to teach them about anti-bullying, and you got this lunatic in the White House bullying his fellow citizens. Uh, you say, and I, I'm going to turn this over to the audience in a few minutes, but yeah. you said you were a lifelong Republican. Let's yeah. assume he doesn't get removed by the Senate, that there mm-hmm. aren't enough Republicans yeah. who will step up. The waterfall never comes. Right. Uh, are there it's any over. of the Democrats that you like? Yeah, no, no, then it's over. Then I have, look, if they, if they allow him a license to commit these crimes, and now you have a standing traditional party, Abraham Lincoln's party, 1856, 1860, the first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, arguably the greatest American that ever lived. It's his party. The successors of Abraham Lincoln are allowing one lunatic to break the law and abrogate the Constitution. So that's not going to be my party for much longer if that's what they're going to do. Now, I'm praying that there will be some courage. You mentioned John Kennedy. He wrote three books, Nation of Immigrants. He wrote Why England Slept, and he wrote Profiles and Courage. And he said that Profiles and Courage was the shortest book because there's no courage. So he wrote a very short book about the Profiles of Courage. Now we got a new John Kennedy. He's the senator from Louisiana. I keep tweeting out would he please change his name. Yeah, and he's, he's writing a book called Profiles and Cowardice. See? And they're all cowards sitting in there. And so this is, a, this is a very big problem for the United States because in order for all of us to be free, we have to embolden the law. Cicero said, we are slaves to the law in order to be free. We have to subordinate ourselves to the system. And then if you subordinate yourself to the system, you believe in the system's integrity. If you put one person over the system, preserve your personal power, you're now going to change the behavior of everybody in this room. Everybody in this room is going to know that America doesn't exist the way you thought it did in your eighth grade civics class. And if we do that and we put the whole country at risk, the behavior in the country will change. And when you shift the behavior in the country uh, and people start to say, wait, you know what? How many people have said to me, hey, Ant, you got to cut it out, man. He's going to win again and he's going to use the power of the presidency to come after you. Well, that's full-blown fascism. Okay, so he could do that, Bob, right? And so, so what? So what? You either love the country or you don't love the country. You got to make that decision. There's a lot of people that call me up and say, well, I get death threats. I've got a Nassau County police, you know, police officer in front of my house every night, unfortunately. I mean, I get legitimate death threats. I get people taking pictures of my house and they're sending them to my wife that we're going to come through the door and kill your children. Is that the country that we're supposed to be living in, guys? Is that the country you guys want to live in? I have a political difference with the political leadership, and we have civic rights and human rights and freedom of speech in the country. Is that the country you guys want to live in? I don't want to live in that country. You've got to get out and vote. You take this guy out, no matter who it is, as long as it's so I would take my nine-year-old nephew over this guy. I mean, he would go in with his Pokemon cards and, like, talk to the cabinet over this guy. So, so okay. what do you so think of the Democratic candidates? Do you like any of them? Well, that's the best thing that Trump has going for him. Okay, and I'm not trying to be critical of the Democrats. I'm just trying to be observant. 
you know, I mean, Joe Biden is a great guy. But, I mean, you hear him talking about the hairs on his legs and stuff yesterday? I mean, it was a little nuts. Look, I'm just being honest with you. You know, I thought Kamala Harris was a very effective person. I'm surprised she flamed out. I don't know that party as well as maybe some of the Democrats in this room. Um, I think this, you know, the mayor, Pete Buttigieg, I've met him. I think he's incredibly competent. He's got an unbelievable resume. But I think he's a little young. I don't think his sexual preferences, I don't think anybody cares about that anymore. It's just my honest opinion. But he may be a little bit young for that job. Uh, but I think he's a very competent guy. It's not surprising to me why he's ahead in the polls. I mean, Elizabeth Warren wants to revoke the system. You know, you've got Barack Obama out there trying to send a warning to everybody. Hey, you know, the Americans don't want the system revoked, right? So she wants to revoke the system. I don't know how that's going to play. You know, I think, she, I think if she's up against Trump, if Trump survives this, by the way, I predict he will not survive this. But if he does survive this, and he's up against Elizabeth Warren. He said he'll beat her brains in. Okay, so so you tell me, Bob. You're the Democrat here. You what? tell me. I don't know. You tell me the uh, person. You know, Mike. Uh, I Mayor, think, uh, Mayor, to be honest, I think Biden has shown remarkable resilience, mm-hmm. despite yeah. what people call he gaffes, needs, despite everything else. He needs more mental discipline, though. And Obama's signaling to him. Obama's told his friends, "Hey, he needs to be more verbally disciplined." Joe. Vice President Biden, tighten up your game. Slow down, tighten up your game. And, uh, and here's the thing. Okay, I'm not a – obviously, I sucked at being a communications director. I only lasted like 11 days. But, but here's the thing that I learned in politics. Okay, I'm really more of an entrepreneur and a business person. But make it simple. Make it simple. And keep it simple. So when you say to people, I'm going to change the entire healthcare system and I'm going to, there's 160 million people on private insurance, I'm going to take that away from them and we're going to have a one-pay system, you're scaring the living daylights out of everybody. Because people say they want change, but trust me, they don't want change. You want to hear something crazy about Trump's base? They're fiscally liberal. They're socially conservative. You go to the Tea Party uh, conventions, they got signs of get your government hands off my Medicare. Excuse me, it's a, it's a government program. You see what I'm saying? Trump knows that, by the way. That's why he never cut any of those benefits. He knows that. He knows his base. Remember, his base is not traditional. It is social conservatism with fiscal liberality. Okay, and so to me, whoever you're picking, keep it simple. Don't change the whole system. You know, M- Mayor Bloomberg is a super smart guy. Okay, see his messaging? You can keep your health care if you want it, but if health care is not what you want, we're going to find you different health care. That's a simple message. People like that message. He went from 0 to 6% in the polls. problem is now we hate people that are wealthy, so that's going to be a problem for him. There's a specter of populism in the culture now. <laughs> so you, you think it would be okay with Pete Buttigieg and his Pokemon cards? Anybody that can breathe into a mirror and chew gum and walk is better than Trump. Anybody that can breathe into a mirror, chew gum, is better than Trump. Even if they are ideologically opposed to me and how I think about our civilization, the, the system will, you have to keep the integrity of the system. This, this guy is threatening the integrity of the system. And the fact that there are people in the Republican Party that I respect, who I will not name, but you know who they are. What are you guys doing? Okay, I'll name one. I can't help myself, okay? Go look at Lindsey Graham for a second. 
Think about what Lindsey Graham has said. And everybody goes through this with Trump. You start out hating his guts. Then you're like, okay, let me try to like him. Okay, I'm trying to like him. And then you end up hating his guts. Okay, and so now Lindsey Graham is in the center of that arc now. And he's twisting himself into like a, you know, you know one of those stretching contortionists in, in the circus. But what did Lindsey Graham say three years ago? If we make him the nominee, he's going to destroy our party. Now, I should have listened to that. I got it wrong because I was going through that arc, Bob. You know, I was, at the, I was at the top of the arc when Bob and I were on TV together. He told me that Trump was going to lose. And I said, no. I, Trump I, is, I lost the bet. Trump, we, we bet. I don't know, but he's never bet. collected. It's, I don't know. It's like a ham sandwich. <laughs> I don't, point was, because I was, I was on the ground with this guy, and I was in the rallies with him, and I saw, and I'm going to tell you guys something that you're not going to like, okay, because you're – you, you could be sheltered by your life experience. So I grew up in a blue-collar community, but I spent 30 years of my life searching for the American dream and building aspirational financial independence. And so I started hanging out with very wealthy people and picking up their collective biases. So I literally did not see the economic angst that was out there. Now, maybe you saw it, and maybe you're a lot smarter than me. But Trump saw it. When I went to, I think I told you the story. When I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico with Trump, it was my first rally. I walked into the crowd. I took the Secret Service pin off. I started asking people, why were they here? And this one guy said to me, what's something I'll never forget? He was, hey, you think you're in New Mexico? This is not New Mexico. New New Mexico. Oh, that would be Mexico. Because all of the factories and all the jobs have moved to Mexico. I'm struggling. This guy is a business guy. I saw him on The Apprentice. He's telling me he's going to bring the jobs back. And we left the establishment malpractice. They left a vacuum of advocacy for blue-collar people that transitioned from aspirational working class, that was my family, to desperational working class in 35 years. And he exploited that. And so if we don't learn from that, and, and, and your nominee, whoever it may be, don't call these people deplorable and white ethno-nationalists and all that. Go talk to them. They just want jobs. They want their families to do better. And go talk to them. And unlike Secretary Clinton, and I don't mean any offense to her. I like her as a person. But you got to go to Wisconsin. You got to go to Michigan. You got to go meet with these people. She didn't go to Wisconsin once. Now the DNC is putting their convention in Milwaukee. It's very smart. But go do the work. Whoever your nominee is, go do the work and meet these people. So I want to turn this over to the audience. and Yeah, so earlier this semester, we actually had um, the author Stan Greenberg in here. He wrote a book called R.I.P. GOP, and you're talking about how you would consider leaving the party if they exonerated Trump through the impeachment trial. Uh, he said basically that he doesn't see the party lasting in the same image or even lasting past Trump maybe the next eight years. Do you believe in that, or do you think it'll well, survive? You know, I, I'm probably more nuanced than him. I think it's mission critical right now. I think party leadership, elders in the party, um, would have to get up right now and say, okay, listen, we've read through the stuff. you got to go. And, and what they're so fearful of is Trump's base. They're studying Trump's base. He's got great density and recalcitrance to that base. You know, there's probably 25% hardcore support where what Trump said, he could literally shoot people on Fifth Avenue. They're afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. It's a personality cult. The minute he's gone, it's like the Night King – you know who he is? He's the, he's the wicked witch. He's like the wicked witch of the West Wing, right? 
What you got to do is you throw the water on him. He has all this perceived power. Once you hit him with the water, has anybody here watched that movie? You remember what the guards did after the witch started melting? They're like, geez, I'm sorry, Dorothy. I mean, that was a terrible thing that we were doing to you. You see what I mean? And they have to get over their fear, okay? And then he'll melt away. And then they can rebuild and reframe the party, and they better open the tent, okay? Because what Trump did something fascinating. He, he took the Fox News hagiography, okay? Remember what Fox News' programming mission was? Let's find things to piss off our white grandparents and put them on the news. Okay? Let's do that. And so we're going to shoot the news in reverse to show America in the 40s or the 50s, the hagiography of happy days. Okay? But that's America that never existed because you had black water fountains or African-American water fountains and white water fountains. So the America that you're shooting into the past never existed, but he has a lot of demography that's older. He did something that was demographically threading the needle. If you look at his voter base and you look at how he won in those certain states, he lost the popular vote, but he won in certain states because he understood that mantra. If the Republican Party doesn't break that spell, um, and, and by the way, whatever I think of Reince Priebus, he wrote a report after the 2012 election. You should go read that report. It said that the Republican Party has to open the tent has to make it more available to people regardless of their sexual preferences, their religious experiences, or whoever they are. And so if they don't do that, then that gentleman is going to be right. And I'm telling you right now, it's, it, it, to me, it's a fatal kill shot in the next 6 to 12 months for that party. Uh, next question. Any? So I think it was last year Lawrence Tribe spoke here about his book of impeachment. And one of the things he ended with was he felt that if – we went through with this impeachment process, there would be, and if Trump lost, there would be civil disorder. I think that's what he was implying. Do you see that be with his base? I don't, I don't, I don't see that. So I think that, you know, again, this, this is my opinion. So it's worth its weight in salt, but you know, professor tribe was my constitutional law professor and we are different ideologically. He's a Democrat. I'm a Republican, but uh, I learned a tremendous amount from him in school. And, because of him, I fell in love with the guy. You have to read that document. It's one of the more amazing historical documents. And it's, it's almost ageless until Trump got a hold of it. Right? I mean, it had a very good run, 243 years. And, but I don't believe that because I think ultimately you can feel the rancor, but it's not serious rancor. It's Thanksgiving rancor. It's television rancor. It's not, I'm going to take to the street and shoot people for Donald Trump. No way. I don't believe that. Is there 3% of the population, 1% of the population that will march with a tiki torch? Yes. Yes, there are white supremacists. Tucker Carlson's wrong. But there's not 20% of the population that's white supremacists. There are white supremacists, unfortunately. And, you know, we have to do what we can to properly law enforce them. But I, I think he's wrong about that. And that's my point. The water hits this guy even his most ardent supporters know he's a little mishugana. They do. Okay, and the Axios poll, 69% of the people don't like him. Okay, now he's got 35 or 40% support. That means there's a group of people that are supporting him. They actually don't like him. He's not, he's, he's an un-American person. Okay, this is Hollywood, right? We're living in Hollywood. When in America did the bully win the movie? I don't remember the bully win in the movie. 
right? Didn't Rudy beat up on the bully or some shit like that? I mean, when, when, did, the, when did the bully win the movie? You see what I'm saying? So the minute he goes, people are like, okay, look, I'm sort of relieved that he's gone. Now, what's the next thing? What are we doing now? I absolutely believe that. And we have to convince people of that so they're not intimidated by him. Uh, next question. You got a lot of questions here. I got here late, so if it's okay, I'll take as many questions as you want me to. And I apologize for being late. What set of events or methods do you think needs to take place for Trump's base to sort of break out of the psychosis supporting him? So I got bad news for you. There's a group of them, no matter what, are going to be with them. Okay, I'm going to ask you a trivia question. I have the answer. I actually did a lot of research on this. It's April of 1945. Germany has been completely devastated. 65 million people killed on the continent of Europe. The entire German nation is destroyed. Hitler is dead. He shot himself in the bunker. What was Hitler's approval rating in mid-April of 1945? In Germany. German citizens, what, did they, what was his approval rating? No, not that high, but it was 39%. Okay, so don't forget that number. Um, when you are running a personality cult or you are running a megalomaniacal thing, I remember what Hitler was doing. He was making Germany great again, right? And he was going to restore the power and greatness of Germany. There's a group of the demography that likes those symbolic totems of nationalism. So you're not going to get to a good, you know, my opinion, studying the thing, you got 25% of the people are immovable. You've now got 21% of the people. He won the last time 46% of the vote. So you get 21% of the people you can reach. Okay, and the way you got to reach them is through really good leadership. And you also have to provide them an alternative. You know, you have to say, okay, listen, this is not working, but here's somebody that's rational, he or she, that can provide you an alternative. And what I don't like about what the Democrats are doing, it's too radical. Okay, okay, Barack Obama, don't go by me. Just go by what Barack Obama's saying. He's saying, guys, cool it out on this ultra-left stuff. The, 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 this, you don't, the people don't want to break the system. So three things you could do. You got to get out there and speak. You got to organize. Okay, there's 54 to 60% of the people that you can get to, and we got to focus. And so what I'll be doing over the next 11 or so months, I'll be in every swing state. And if I can move 10,000, 20,000 people off the dime, that incrementally makes a difference because it's going to be a very tight election no matter who it is. And you could do that, okay? If you want to come to the swing states with me, let me know, okay? You get my contact information from a Bob, we'll go, okay? I'm going to knock on doors. I'm going to meet with people. And I, I'm doing talk radio all over the place. You got to see these conservative lunatics bringing me on to, to talk radio. Like, they think they're going to, like, verbally, like, knock me down or something like that. They don't, even, they don't, they don't have any facts. How, okay, somebody in the room has got to be a Trump supporter. Support the guy so I can explain to you why you shouldn't. I mean, it's like a joke. They got these people calling in, telling me I'm a traitor and blah, 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 blah. I'm the traitor? This guy took an oath to the Constitution. He blew up the Constitution. How am I the traitor? I love my country. Be a patriot first and a partisan second. Or how about a partisan last? Be a patriot. Talk the truth. And you will move people. You will move them from where they are. Say, you know what? This is not working for the United States. He's embarrassing us on the world. So you see this guy yesterday? Come on, guys. It's embarrassing. Macron, I love the guy, right? You see Macron? He's like, hey, man, I had enough of you. You see that today? I had enough of you. Oh, you didn't see that? 
Oh, it was great. He was like talking to him. He said, you want some of these ISIS fighters? He says, why don't you get serious? Okay, and Trump doesn't know how to handle that because he's, what do we all know about bullies? The minute you start hitting the bully, they start running. Come on, this guy's a bully. He's the wicked witch of the West Wing. Throw some water on him and let's get rid of him. And we can do it. We can do it together. Uh, another, another question? You've talked a bit about um, things Donald Trump has done, uh, such as threading the needle with demographics and such that portray him in a very, I guess, intelligent sense. But at the same time, you've um, referred to some of the things that he said in a more goofy or silly light. So out of the things that, you, that he's done that seem very intelligent, um, is this Trump making these decisions, or is it um, the people yes, around make, him? Yes, make, make no mistake, he is extremely intelligent. So he may not be intelligent the way some of you are in this room where you're academically intelligent. Okay, I'm absolutely convinced. I'm not a psychologist or anything. I'm just an observer of people. And I've been pretty good at managing people, and I'm pretty good at putting a team together. Uh, Richard Branson said something to me about Trump five or six years ago. This is well before he was running for president. Uh, Richard has ADHD, and he has a learning disability. He has dyslexia. You could, it's well documented. Trump's learning issues have never been documented. So I'm just telling you what Richard said is that he reminds me of myself. I can't read and I can't sit still, but I'm very good at picking up things. So in other words, if you're blind, you can hear better. But if you're deaf, you can see better. That's Trump. He can't read as well as you, perhaps. Just look at him on the teleprompter, right? I mean, it's like nuts, right? And that's why he doesn't like using the teleprompter because he has a hard time following the words. But that doesn't mean he's not smart. How many dyslexic people do we know that have gone on and created unbelievable com- companies, including Richard Branson? Trump's skill set is intuition. Trump understood the inside straight that he needed to win the presidency. He got it because there was a very large group of people that have been left out of the system. We did some unbelievable things for the world. We did some unbelievable things for our country in terms of globalization and trade. But the deleterious side effect of that is we left out a very large group of people. Okay, I don't have slides. I don't want to bore you guys, but I have a great slide that can show you that when the economic rent distribution is 50-50 between labor and capital, you have a very happy society. When it goes and tilts its way towards capital, away from labor, you get discontent. You get the robber barons in the 1890s. You get the rise of progressivism, Teddy Roosevelt, in the turn of the 20th century. I can show it to you. When it's in equipoise, you're okay. okay? And the irony of that is that 3% of the people own the capital. So you can literally give 50% of the economic rent to 3% of the people, 50%, the other 97%, and we're okay. We're at 59.41 right now. That's not workable for this country. That creates anger and resentment, and Trump is an avatar for that anger. Now, what we got to do is we got to go to those swing states and explain to people, okay, he's an avatar for your anger, but he hasn't provided you a policy solution. Yes, you're angry. You want to stick a finger in the eye of the establishment and the fake news media and blah, blah. We got all that, but don't you want a better job? Let's explain to them what we need to do from policy prescription. But that's very astute of you. He is very, very smart. And if you want to beat him in this room, don't underestimate him. Okay, and don't underestimate his resilience because he's not a normal person. Go look at the 
150 prostitutes that he's paid. Go look at the indiscretions in his business. Go look at the understatement of his taxes and the overstatement of his income for mortgage purposes. That is a guy that can withstand an abnormal amount of heat. You see that? So don't underestimate him. Okay, you have to organize. The, the reason why the rapist never pushed through sociologically is everybody got together in the village and hit the rapist in the head with a rock. Rapist was more aggressive. His genes should have passed on. But this is a social organism. We got to get together and, and, and take out the sociopath. We got to do that together. We're not going to be able to do it on our own. But don't underestimate him. It's very astute of you to bring that up. Uh, two or three more questions. Okay. Probably too long-winded. I'll, I'll, I'll shorten up the No, no, we're fine. fine. Uh, yes, Anthony, um, quick question. Given uh, Trump's documented behavior and temperament, do you have any concerns as to whether he will actually leave if he does lose the election or create some sort of chaos with, I want to recount, or it's crazy, or blah, blah, blah? Yes. How's that for an answer? Okay, we can go to the next one. I mean, yes, 100%. Of course. You do too. It's abnormal. It's abnormal. What he's already done is abnormal. Say what you want about Richard Nixon. He was trying to cover it up. It was a stupid third-rate burglary. He was trying to cover it up. Once they broke the law and they obstructed justice, he's like, I'm not bringing down the whole system. I'm getting out of here. Okay? He was disgraced. He did something. was like a pin dot compared to what this guy's done. Next question. I kind of have a two-piece question here. The first one is... I feel that um, Trump tends to be kind of like a virus that infects others and then cuts off those pieces and continues to survive. And um, Good analogy. So <laughs> He's about to do with the Rudy, by the way. Well, going to do with the Rudy. Not only that, but I, I think in the, in the Senate, they're, they're probably thinking if they get rid of Trump, then who's next? And he's infected the vice president. Mm -hmm. So then they're thinking Nancy's going to take over. So I think that may be a fear. No, I mean, I mean, I, I, I see that as remote. I think that's like a, one of those postulates in the, you know, talk radio world. But I I think if you're making a point that uh, he infects people, he does, he's got a talk about his brilliance. He can figure out who wants and needs the bubble and who doesn't. See that? I got fired very, very quickly because I actually don't need the bubble. Okay, I've already lived the American dream. I'm very content with myself. I get up in the morning, you know, I got a ton of flaws. We could name all of them, but you know what? I'm doing the best I can. Rudy wants to be in the bubble. Okay, Pompeo, nice man, wants to be in the bubble. What's the bubble? I want to be on Air Force One. I want to fly Marine One to Air Force One. I want to walk into the White House in my black tie on the way to the head of state dinner, state dinners. See what I mean? And so Rudy, and I told Rudy this, but he doesn't listen. You want to be in the bubble. So you have to go through your evaluation personality-wise, and if you're about significance, Trump can sense it on you the way like a Geiger counter can sense radioactivity. And so he, look what he did to Romney the other day. Put Romney next to him. He broke all the protocol, right? He's a junior senator. But he knows he's in trouble with Romney. And he had Romney sitting right next to him so they could have the photo op together. Romney looked like he was in like a hostage video, the poor son of a bitch, you know. <laughs> but, hey, he's got to step up, man. He's 73 years old. He's got 26 grandchildren. you got to step up, man. What are you doing? got to step up. It's your country. 
But yeah, I, I get the point. Can I take one more question? One more. All right. Yes. Thank you for being here. I have a bit more of a multifaceted, and, and it's a long question. Uh, since the month of July, the Fed has raised the rates uh, three times in five months at a quarter of a percentage the point. Rates. The Fed's lowered it's the lowered rates. It's lowered the rates yeah. at a quarter percentage point each time, so it's about 75 basis points lower now than it was then. Right. Um, Trump has also threatened to put 100% tariffs on some of France's uh, biggest exports. He said that yesterday. So the question is that uh, these uh, trends, and corroborated with some of the things that we're seeing with China, this amplification of the trade war. Do you think that this is going to lead to de-dollarization and a lead to um, uh, a loss of the U.S. dollar as, uh, as a reserve currency? Okay, so this is a very good question. I don't want to bore everybody here, but you and I should talk afterwards, and I can give you a whole clinical assessment of that. So, yes, the, the, the globe is in the process of de-dollarizing, but it will not happen as quickly as people think. Okay, so what does that basically mean? We're the world's reserve currency. So when other banks have to have our currency in their vaults when they're looking at the Basel III capital requirements. So the question the gentleman's asking is, will that be the case in 25 or 30 years, or will they accept Russian rubles or uh, a Chinese RMB? And so people think that that will happen because we've corrupted the system through the way we're using sanctions and our monetary policy. But I'm going to tell you that that's not going to happen as quickly as people think because uh, it's still the safest area in the world to invest in. Why? It has to do with the rule of law in the country. People trust the rule of law in this country. And so when they come in and they buy something here, they believe that they own it. They don't feel that way about the Chinese. They don't feel that way about other places. It's going to last longer. But you move Trump ahead of the law, you put him above the law, you're going to move closer to de-dollarization. Right, can we end on something positive, though? Is that cool or what? Sure. All right. So it's very important for the young people here. The world is moving exponentially. But you're in a, you know, you guys all have your iPhone or your Samsung phone, but you're not, okay? You're trapped in a 100,000-year-old piece of machinery that hasn't evolved in 100,000 years. Okay, go to the sociology department or anthropology, they'll tell you, you're in the same sort of machinery that the ancient Romans were in. Okay, no software upgrade. Your phone went from iPhone 1 to iPhone 11 in 12 years, but you're in a 100,000-year-old piece of machinery, so you've got to understand that machinery and how it thinks. You're taught atavistically, not taught, but it's part of your, it's a phenotype to think linearly. So if it's here today, it's going to be like that tomorrow, and it's going to be like that the next day. It helps you survive. But the world is not moving linearly. So if you're an investor in the room or you're a sociologist or a politician, the world's going to move exponentially. So don't get caught by your own physicality seeing the world in the wrong way. Let me give you two quick examples. Thomas Malthus. Anybody remember him? Okay, who was he? Quickly. Tom Malthus. This gentleman raised his hand. Right. And he basically said we're going to starve. That's very good, by the way. You're getting good education here at USC. Good job, Bob. That was very good. Okay, so, so basically what Tom Malthus said... Really bad news. We're, we're breeding like little rabbits. We're having a lot of sex. We're growing the population exponentially, but we can't grow the food that way. We're growing the food linearly, so we're going to starve. But he missed the exponential move in technology, genetically processed food, you know, all the irrigation, fertilization, blah, blah. We have more people dying from obesity-related diseases than we do from starvation. Second one, quickly, peak oil theory. Okay, we're old enough to remember that. There are people in this room... Uh, where we were told in a, in a university like this, we're running out of oil. I was told in 1985 at Tufts University, no oil, 2010. 
$2,000 a barrel, it's going to be a nightmare. We have more oil than we know what to do with because of fracking and diagonal drilling and all the things that would new exploration. We just have to figure out a way to burn it properly, which is another thing. We can talk about that. Okay, we're going to solve the global warming crisis. I predict that. I explain to you why. But you have to think exponentially. Okay, and so we got to keep ourselves out of a war. And we have to do, as these technologies advance exponentially, we have to figure out with good social policy and tax policy and good government to share it. Again, not share it in a socialistic way, because that's not ever going to work. It's against human nature. But to make sure that there are incentives and some levels of equal aspirational opportunity in the system so people can get a piece of the pie. And if we do that, we're going to have a very, very fun time here over the next 25 to 50 years. We've got to just knock off the nonsense that's going on right now. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. What I appreciate a great you. way to end the semester. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs.